There was a holiday this week. Did you notice? <laughs> this holiday is called Ascension Day. And, uh, you know, in the United States, we don't really celebrate the Christian calendar holidays like Ascension Day. So it's a, it's a bit of a mental jump for someone like me, uh, an American, to notice that there's a holiday. So I was here doing my regular thing. <laughs> but in any case, this holiday, Ascension Day, marks an event in the life of Christ, like most of the Christian calendar holidays. And so, if we read the New Testament, we find out that after the resurrection, Christ was on the earth with his disciples for a period of 40 days. And then, we see it recorded in the book of Acts, he ascended. Uh, and so, there's that story in the book of Acts of the Disciples, they're there with Jesus, and he's telling them to stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And then he says, and then you'll be my witnesses once you've received the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, that refers to another day that's coming up real soon. In fact, one week from today. So, Jesus, while they're there and they're talking, and he just suddenly went up into heaven and through the clouds. And then they're all just sort of standing there going, what? And uh, an angel shows up to say, why are you standing around staring at the clouds? In the same way that he has gone, he will come back. So, here's a third event in the life of Christ. We have the ascension. We have the empowerment of the Spirit. And then we have the second coming. Jesus had announced in the book of John, perhaps in the other Gospels as well, that once he went back to the Father, that event would precede the sending of the Spirit, the second event, and that one day he would return himself, the third event. Well, this event of the ascension is a big deal in the book of Hebrews that we've been looking at. You know, it's interesting to notice maybe that the book of Hebrews mentions the sacrifice of Christ, the death of Christ, a lot. And it mentions Christ sitting down at the right hand. That's the ascension, the enthronement of Christ. Christ King. It barely mentions the resurrection because the resurrection is implied in the ascension, and the implied is, where is he now? 
where he is now is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now we maybe understand why it's so important that he died. To give his life a sacrifice to satisfy the justice of God for our sins on our behalf so that we can be reconciled to God. And we understand why he was raised because he is raised to show that he has no ultimate power over him. I mean, if he's not raised, then the job isn't done. still in our sins because apparently he's not who he said he was. Because God and stay dead. Well, anyway, that's all very mysterious. But we know we need the resurrection. We also might know that we need the second coming. That resurrection is when risen Savior and we will need to be raised as well. But what do we need him seated for? Well, we might get a bit of a clue this morning as we Look into this text in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, it's Hebrews 10, and we're going to go from, well, verse 11, but we're really going to remind ourselves what we read in verse 10 before we proceed. Jesus says, Behold, I've come to do your will. Verse 10 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, it seems to jump. Like, how's that related to that? One thing you want to remember, especially here in the book of Hebrews, is the whole thing, everything is related to the next thing. And sometimes that can be hard to see how. So, having offered one sacrifice for sin, he sat down, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, 
those are related. Because he seems to jump from the sacrifice of Christ to Christ taking his place at the right hand of God, the throne, the kingly place, to the Spirit speaking to us about writing the law on our hearts and God forgiving us our sins. We might remember that Jesus told us that these things were related because Jesus said, unless I go, the Spirit won't come. So when Jesus goes, the Spirit comes. You have to have the ascension in order to have Pentecost. The two things go together. The ascension of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit in a fresh way that happens on the day of Pentecost where the Spirit, God puts His Spirit into our hearts. Now this text, like a lot of texts in the book of Hebrews, makes a comparison between every priest and Christ. And I've given you that comparison in the bulletin there in, in the notes it says, every priest stands daily ministering or serving. Now, that word ministering is in a particular form. And in, in this text, you have Christ also doing something, but it's not ministering. It's waiting. The priests were ministering day after day, time after time, offering time after time the same sacrifices, the sacrifices that can never take away sin. They're not really designed to take away sin. They're just designed to sort of allow for it for the time being. So every day they're standing Serving, 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 serve. They probably got tired. Well, actually, they got so tired, they all died. Every, and this, the book of Hebrews is said, has mentioned this, like they were prevented from continuing by dying. He continues. Continues what? Well, where they were serving, he's waiting. So they stand daily ministering. He sat down. They stand. He sits. They are serving. He's waiting. He sat down at the right hand of God. Now, this is something that's mentioned several times in the book of Hebrews, beginning of chapter 8, at the beginning of the book. Having made a satisfaction for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's verse 3 of the very... The man Jesus earned his place as God's right-hand man. The man... Now, the Son of God, the eternal Son, is the eternal Son. He's always been God's right hand. 
the executive of all the decrees of God the Father. And as a man, as the man born Jesus, he continues as a man to absolutely at all times execute every element of the will of his Father, but now as one of us. So he lives a perfectly righteous life as one of us. He dies as one of us. He is risen as one of us. And he is seated one of us at the very right hand of God. So now things have changed. Now a human being is seated at the right hand of God. That's important. He did this after he offered himself once for all time, one sacrifice. And that sacrifice accomplished something. Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices that never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. <laughs> for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So those other sacrifices didn't take away sin. His does. His does. And it does more than just take away sin. It completes the ones who are set apart. The ones who are sanctified. It is by the finished work that we are finished. Completed, perfected. For all time. When Jesus says it is finished, he has accomplished his objective in his death on the cross, and that objective is to remove our sins and to perfect us so that we, the ones who are being set apart to God through this sacrifice, can be set apart to God through this sacrifice. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So now he's waiting. He's seated. He's seated at the right hand of God where we have read in the book of Hebrews, he ever lives to make intercession for us. His presence before God intercedes for us to this day. So his priesthood is still having its effect for us. So Christ is seated at the right hand until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So apparently there's some things that are not yet done. There's some things that haven't been finished yet 
And that is, that is a reference to the kingdom of Christ, to the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's seated at the right hand. He is the king. And yet, not all of his enemies have been subdued just yet. You can read about this in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians fifteen twenty five. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So this isn't saying that Christ doesn't reign yet, that Christ isn't already king. He is, and he must reign until all his enemies, he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjected under him, that God may be all in all. <laughs> so God is going to finally and completely defeat the last enemy, death. You and I, we're still going to die. But in the coming of Christ, we will be raised from the dead, just as he was. That means flesh and blood raised from the dead. That means this body, which may die, will be raised from the dead. That I, you'll be able to look at me and go, oh, yeah, that's Doug. We'll be raised as he was raised. And so, uh, the last enemy will be defeated. Christ is eagerly anticipating consummation of his earthly kingdom in exactly this way when the time comes. You might remember that we are also described as waiting for that day just at the end of the last chapter waiting for Christ to come again, Christ also waiting for that, for that second sending. <clears throat> He's waiting uh, on behalf of his people. He is seated there on behalf of his people. He, he is set apart to God, to set us apart to God, his holy people, those who will make up his kingdom, we who are being sanctified, as the text says. If you are in Christ, you are set apart for the kingdom of Christ. 
there's nothing more to be done to make you a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, a subject of that king, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are his for all time. He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that from that time onward, ever since then, waiting until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Here's the thing about a Christian is you have been claimed by the Lord Jesus Christ for God. That makes you a holy person. Set apart. Now, when I say that makes us a whole, makes each of us a holy person, we think, wow, well, I don't know. I'm not that holy. Because we think of holy as meaning righteous. And we're also righteous persons if we're talking about how God counts it. Because God has credited us with the righteousness of Christ. So we are clothed, the Scripture says, in His righteousness. So we also can stand in Christ before the very throne of God. We are reconciled to Him in this way. We are set apart, and that means we are holy. That means we belong to Him and we do not belong to anyone else. We are for His purpose, and we are not for any other purpose. We belong entirely to Him. Now, we have a bit of a struggle with this, it seems. And this text says... So there's some sort of process going on there's a there's a setting apart and then there's some sort of process by which we're realizing that reality and that's where this comes in the holy spirit also bears witness also testifies to us we have been hearing the testimony of jesus the the christ said couple of times in the first part of this chapter, and now the Spirit also testifies. The Spirit also bears witness to us. What does he say? This is verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the after those Lord, I will put my laws upon their and I will write them. He then also says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. What does the Spirit say to us? Only what the Scripture already said, because those are two quotes from the book of Jeremiah, two verses right in a row. Well, this is the normal operation of the Holy Spirit to address the Scripture to the heart of the person, to to us, 
to you, to me, to say, this is the covenant to the Hebrews is he saying, this is to you. When the Spirit spoke to the prophet all those years ago, it was by us in the church. The Spirit of God speaks the Word of God to the person of God. That's how this works. As to me and to you. In fact, is of the spirit. So if we ask who's Jeremiah, there are two answers, two correct answers. those days. There's two things here. One is an, etern- an internal transformation that the Spirit speaks to us. He says, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them. Now, what he's saying here is the very law of God will come to dwell in our hearts and minds. A true comprehension of God's will in life and a true desire, it's also on my heart, to, for obedience to God's will, to God's law. God is, uh, God's law requires honesty, truthfulness. So what God is saying in this text is the, the Spirit will write this on my heart so that I become internally truthful. Telling the truth sounds like a good idea when I think about it. Telling the truth is a good idea to me even when it might cause me some problems. Now, that, I, don't, I don't want to tell you that that means you should be brutally honest. Jesus is full of truth and grace somehow. So what I am telling us is that we have been given a heart for loving honesty. And that has come to pass. The Spirit says this to us. The second thing is an external determination. The first thing was an internal transformation God writing his laws on our hearts and minds. The second is an external determination. He says, I will stop remembering 
their sins and their lawless deeds. I will stop recalling. This reminded me of those situations where a witness is being interrogated and they say, hey, well, what happened that day? And the guy says, I don't recall. I don't recall. Here's the thing. I could say, hey, hey, Lord, you remember when Bob did that horrible thing to me the other day? The Lord says, I don't remember. I don't recall. That's the promise of this covenant. It's not that you haven't done some horrible things. It's not that you haven't got any sins or lawless deeds, any moments where you just kind of ignored what the law of God says and just did what you wanted to do. You've got plenty of that. You've probably got some today. But if I go to the Lord and say, hey, he's going to say, I don't remember. Because he has promised not to remember. The Scripture says this another way, that he separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Your sins and your lawless deeds are no longer connected to you in the mind of God if you are sanctified and set apart by the work of Christ. That's quite a thing. And it's the Spirit who communicates this to you. There is a, another Spirit who is called our enemy who communicates the opposite to you, who is always pointing out what a horrible sinner you are. And he doesn't have to lie to do this. He can tell the truth. He doesn't have to make up things to accuse you of, our enemy. He can accuse you of things that are actually the case. But when he comes to God and he says, hey, that guy's a horrible sinner. God's like, I don't remember that. God has promised you not to recall your sins. How does God call himself righteous and do that? That doesn't sound righteous to just say, yeah, I forgot about those sins. That doesn't sound like righteous. There's only one way, the blood of Christ. The only way the Spirit's testimony to us can be true is that Christ is seated at the right hand, proving it by the wounds of the cross, by presenting himself to say the sacrifice that ends all sacrifice, that actually removes our sin from us, has been made. The sacrifice of the righteous one, the Lord Jesus himself, sanctifies us, makes us holy before God, even though we are sinners.
The Holy Spirit is bearing witness of these things to us in the Word of God. It's because we are, uh, it's because this external determination has been made that God says, you're no longer under the weight of your own sin. It's because of that that we get to the internal transformation, the heart to obey. The heart to obey. There's a work of repentance, this comprehension, this true comprehension of the Lord's will and a true desire to follow it. That's a change of mind and a change of heart. That's, we have a word for that. It means repent. We turn from whatever our ways were to whatever His ways are. But the ground of that is the assurance that He has removed your sins from you, that He's no longer paying any attention to your sins because He has forgiven you. You are really forgiven. And so you can live in the liberty of forgiveness. Because you are assured of your safety in Christ, you can move on to obedience. In the old system, that was all turned around. And so we had developed, we're this way anyway, we, we get religious. We think, well, how do I obey so that in, in order to make God accept me? How can I make Him accept me? And this way says, no, He's accepted you be, on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ for good. And for once and for all, He has accepted you. Now, how does an accepted person behave? Now I am an accepted person before God. I am set apart by the work of Christ. And so I am progressing in my love of obedience to Christ. I don't do it because there's some burden imposed on me. If I don't do it, God's going to punish me. I do it because he's promised not to punish me. And to say he's already punished me in Christ, so I am free to live in obedience. The Holy Spirit testifies to this new covenant. In fact, in the Old Testament, the coming of this writing of the law on our hearts, writing of the law in our minds, is directly connected. This is in Ezekiel chapter 36, if you want to look it up is directly connected to the coming of the Spirit. He says, I will put my Spirit within you. If you ask the question, how does God write His law on your heart and in your mind? How did He do that? I didn't see Him get out a pen. I didn't feel the pen scratching anything into my head. How did He do it? Pentecost. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit so that the Spirit permanently dwells 
in the body of Christ and in the individual believer in Christ. The very presence of the Spirit, so that Galatians says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. He says, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. You won't sin. It's the very Spirit of God who dwells in you that is the law of God written on your heart and in your mind. That has already occurred if you have put your trust in Christ. That is the reality. So how are we being sanctified? Well, by attention to that reality, by more and more paying attention to the, the law written on my heart and not my own desire, whatever that might be. To live independent, trusting Christ by the Spirit as opposed to independent, I'll do it myself, work. The Scripture says right here in the book of Hebrews that we are called to enter into the rest of Christ, to rest from our dead works. That means I quit and then Having quit, having rested in him, I work. <laughs> we strive to rest. We work from a resting position. It can be a little confusing, maybe. We work from a resting position because I am safe in Christ. I am safe to love you. It's really that simple. Because I know his love, I am loving. If I forget about his love, you know what's going to happen? Uh, this love is going to just get ingrown. The Spirit of God is working to unwrap us out of ourselves, to make us available to each other, to God, and because of that, to each other, to express the love that he has shown to us. is wrapped up in he sat down at the right hand. The conclusion is this, where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. That's what the, how he comes at the end, verse 18. Now, where there's forgiveness of these things, things are doing. anything wrong or not though you did do something wrong but you know there's not necessarily any connection sometimes a bad thing happens because of the thing you did wrong okay there's a direct connection and sometimes there's no connection at all but that's how we think we think religiously what did I do to make God mad at me or what can I do to make God love me or bless me or blah 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 it's just religion Everywhere, every human being is religious in one way or another to soar towards some God or another. But where there's forgiveness of sin, religion has been abolished. 
There's no longer any offering for sin. The Scripture says Christ has removed our sin. The very word forgiveness is the same word that the Bible uses for divorce. It's a sending away. (laughs) What God has given to you in Christ is a divorce from your sin. It's permanent. So there's no more offering to be made. The struggle to make ourselves acceptable to God, when we enter that into that struggle, we're never going to succeed. Christ has already made us acceptable to God, so we can quit that struggle. So I just want to ask you, are you still making offerings for sin? What I want to say to you is the once and for all offering for sin has already been made. You cannot add to it and you cannot subtract to it. Rest in it and then obey from there. Now, some of us might be remembering there's an offering we're called to make. There are some offerings we're called. Romans 12.1, which we quote all the time, almost every Sunday here, we say, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present, offer your bodies a living sacrifice to God. What about that? Well, here's the thing about that. It's not an offering for sin. It's just not. It's in view of God's mercy. It's in light of the fact that your sins actually have been taken, removed, paid for, however you want to say it. And so that offering we're called upon to make is an offering of thanksgiving. It's not an offering for sin. It's the only sensible thing to do. If God has made this great sacrifice for you, then the only sensible thing to do is to trust yourself entirely to God, making yourself entirely God's. Well, he did, so you're just getting something that's true when you do that. He says, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, holy, set apart, pleasing to God. God is pleased when we rest in Christ. That's the sacrifice. It doesn't really seem like a sacrifice much when you talk about it that way, does it? The living sacrifice, you know, Jesus was a dying sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice. Jesus is a sacrifice for sin. You are a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Paul calls himself a drink offering. He says this to Timothy. He says it to the Philippians. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. You know, in the Old Testament system, what a drink offering was? There was the sacrifice, and then they'd pour some wine on the sacrifice. Drink offering. An offering to God of thanksgiving for atonement. My sacrifice is a drink offering sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, a living one. So we do worship God in these ways, in these offerings, but there's no offering for sin anymore.
the offering for sin that is once and for all and sets us apart. And so religion is over. Well, if religion's over, what are, why are we in church? We do religious stuff. I mean, we, next Sunday we'll have the Lord's Supper. That seems religious. It really is kind of religious in the sense that it's a ritual that we do. So why are we in church? We, it seems religious to go to church, doesn't it? So if religion's over, why are we in church? What do we do? We don't do sacrifice anymore. What do we do? Well, the next, the first word of verse 19 is the word, therefore. And then it says, therefore, let us, three things, let us, let us. I call this the lettuce text. That's horrible, I know. There's three things, and we're going to talk about this next time. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast and let us consider one another. So it's not like there's nothing to do here in church, but what we're doing is no longer a sacrifice for sin. You don't need to come in here and make any penance. You don't need to come in here and make any sacrifice in order to make yourself acceptable to the living God. Christ has made you acceptable to the living God. The living God has accepted you, has adopted you, calls you his child so that you may call him Abba, Father. That is done and done. So we don't bring any sacrifices here to, to reconcile ourselves, to atone for ourselves. But let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider one another. We'll talk about that next time. Father, we give you thanks for your good grace. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into the life of the church and into each of our lives. Lord, help us to be attentive to the Spirit to know, to rest in the assurance of our forgiveness and to give attention to the law of God written on our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we pray that because Christ has obeyed, we might obey. Help us to see, to discern what the will of God is in whatever situation we face in life. Help us to follow. You have given us a heart for these things, Lord. Help us to live in the Spirit and not to fulfill the desires of the flesh. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.